Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Good morning to you. It's Sterling Fox in for Mike Smith on this Monday morning. A busy show lined up for you. One of the big stories over the weekend is uh, announcements from both Air Canada and WestJet regarding the removal of the concept of distancing once you're on board the aircraft. They'll want you to have uh, your distance kept while you're in the, the terminal, in the lineups, checking in, all of that sort of thing. But once you get on the plane, they're going to fill all the seats. And a lot of flyers or wannabe flyers a little nervous about that. We'll get into that one a little later on. Right now, though, uh, it's time to check in with Global BC legislative reporter Richard Zussman. Uh, ICBC has been the topic of much uh, coverage by Global News. Richard, good morning. Good morning, Sterling. It's good to have you with us. Uh, The latest story out of ICBC, uh, and by gosh, there's just no shortage of them. This one, though, about uh, with the changes coming to the way ICBC is going to deal with claims going forward, Richard, this is going to cause, uh, as a, a ripple effect of the rule changes, a lot of job losses in the legal profession, or at least that's what the lawyers are saying. Yeah, so this is an economic analysis that was done uh, by an analyst who also benefits uh, from expert reports within ICBC. But, you know, there can be some consideration taken to the work that has been done uh, by Darren Benning in this regard. And so what the analysis shows is based on uh, looking at the changes of no-fault insurance, uh, a change to that system could lead to between four and 10,000 jobs uh, going away, mainly linked to the legal profession. So these aren't just lawyer jobs. And we've heard a lot from Attorney General David Eby about the impact that these changes will have on lawyers. Right. But this has to do with people who are working in the courts, uh, in the registry system, as paralegals, right. as legal assistants. And so these jobs will add up. And they aren't just downtown Vancouver law firms. These are uh, legal representatives and, and, and employees from across the province. And the point... Uh, the uh, Benning wants to make in providing this analysis uh, is that in the time of COVID-19, when, you know, jobs are scarce in many regards and we're seeing massive job losses, uh, that uh, this could be problematic. You know, the, the defense here, though, Sterling, is simple from the province. The, the switch to no fault is expected to take place next May. Right. And there's going to be five years worth of work as a backlog under the old system. And David Eby says, you know, that's plenty of work. That's a long transition, and it will give paralegals and the the court system ways to transition into other types of legal work. E.B. specifically mentioned to me when I asked him about family law and that the province is in desperate need of family lawyers and and those working in that system, and we could see a shift away from personal injury towards that. All right. Now, this, of course, there are a couple of factors going on here. The the lawyers representing the personal injury uh, profession uh, or uh, sector of the legal profession are not going going down without a fight, even though this long-term arrangement has been worked out, there will be challenges. And in fact, there are already some underway. Is that the case? Yes, there are no doubt concerns around these switches. Yep. The 
trial lawyers have raised those concerns often, and we're in the midst now at the legislature. We're on a break week this week, but mm-hmm. last week, uh, debates started around moving towards uh, the enhanced care model or no-fault insurance, and we expect that it will pass at some point during this uh, unique summer session as we transition towards uh, May 2021. And I asked the Attorney General about the timing of all this mm-hmm. and whether COVID has had an impact on the transition to May of 2021. And he's optimistic the province will be able to get to that point. We've already seen some changes. We've seen the restriction on expert reports, which was originally shot down by the courts, but has now uh, been um, brought in through legislation that will you know, help start saving some money. The argument has been all along here from the government that a switch to the enhanced care model will save a lot of money in legal fees while also enhancing uh, the sort of benefits uh, that those injured uh, in a crash uh, need. Uh, and you can, you know, there can be questions posed about whether that system works for everyone, taking away the right to sue. Uh, but the government is not backing down from this and they're uh, anticipating that it will be ready and passed and into law uh, and and part of the system by May of 2021. Now, Richard, the person that brought forward this uh, analysis, this economic analysis that predicts all of these job losses, paralegals and other people in the system, you could best describe what he does in the court system as, as being an expert witness, right? Yeah, and so he writes expert reports, and these expert reports have been uh, controversial in many regards, not because of the work that people like Darren Benning do, but the way in which ICBC uh, and personal injury lawyers use the reports. And so in some cases, there will be a crash and there will be a dispute around what the settlement will be. Right. And ICBC will find an expert to defend itself in some terms, bringing forward a proposed um, a settlement that is lower than the personal injury lawyers would like to see. And then those lawyers will come back with another expert saying, well, those injuries are so substantial, it will lead to wage loss or will lead to this impact. Mm-hmm. It's much higher. And then you go report to report to report to report. And ultimately what happens in the end is they end up in a settlement in court. And so those reports cost money though. You know, yes. Every report requires research, requires um, you know work being done, and those costs add up. So the province has looked at restricting those as well. So Darren Benning does work on those reports. And so the changes that ICBC will also, and, and he acknowledged this when I spoke to him for the story that we ran on the news hour last night, he acknowledged that yes, his business is directly impacted by these changes. Uh, but still believes in the, in the economic analysis he has put forward. Yeah, Richard. So, uh, I, and we appreciate your your pre- presenting both sides of the, of the argument here: the government side and, and the the legal profession side. Uh, so we know, based on the economic analysis you've just uh, described, that there will be job losses. But beyond those individuals, Richard, who will be losing their employment. Are there is there potential for losers for civilians in all of this? Because, of course, the concern is with the changes in the rules. And as you mentioned already, the removal of the right to sue suggests to some that, yeah, there will be losers at the at the end of all of these changes. Yeah. So one of the big factors here that cannot be accounted for to a switch to the enhanced care model is projected long term earnings. So if someone gets involved in a life-altering crash, they will receive the benefits they need to make themselves whole. But in many regards, they will not be compensated for future lost earnings. 
And so somebody who's younger in their lives and is working towards, you know, a new profession and is in the midst of training, mm -hmm. the um, benefits that will come through the enhanced care model will not offset those future earnings if their life is impacted to the point where they can no longer pursue that new career. So that's one of the criticisms around no fault. There are also criticisms around the sort of services that will be delivered. So uh, the benefits package that comes with enhanced care is substantial. People have access of up to $7 million in benefits, but in some cases there are concerns being raised around whether uh, because uh, the, the IC, because ICBC is trying to save money, whether people will get the full services needed. And then the other big issue, Sterling, in all of this is trust in ICBC. You bet. That is incredibly low, has been for a long time. I asked David Eby about that as well. What he said is right now, ICBC, it's an adversarial model. ICBC often has to go up against British Columbians in court. That's mm -hmm. the way the model is designed. And when that is gone in the no care model or the no fault uh, enhanced care model, uh, he believes that part of that adversarial part of the relationship with ICBC will be gone entirely. That uh, the focus will be on ICBC helping people get better rather than fight them in court. Sterling Fox in for Mike on this Monday morning, joined by Richard Zussman, Global BC legislative reporter, joining us from Victoria. The ledge is out for the week, but Richard's awfully busy reporting this morning on the, the uh, and was on the news hour last night, uh, the, the story about changes to ICBC and the way they're going to handle our claims and our cases going forward. Uh, Richard, just before we take some calls, the one other thing that's come up, of course, is the, the minister, David Eby, that you were speaking with about all of these details, also has the, he's the one who described uh, several months ago now this whole thing as a dumpster fire, uh, basically referring to the terrible financial shape ICBC is in. So the motivation behind all of these changes, is it still basically put out the dumpster fire? Yeah, and, and ICBC has been a financial mess the last few years, losing more than a billion dollars each of the last few years. And, you know, the NDP was not given a particularly solid financial situation at ICBC when it took over uh, three years ago. And mm -hmm. one of the priorities has been to overhaul the public insurer. There will no doubt be questions through the next year leading up to the election around how do we solve the problem at ICBC? Is it no fault? Is it uh, more competition? You know, those are conversations we're going to be having. But, you know, Sterling, the bottom line here is rates have been going up for British Columbians and losses have been mounting, you know, for various different reasons, increase yep. in crash, increase in fraud, uh, in some cases, luxury cars that are more expensive to fix than ever before. But a big part of all of this has been the system that uh, the legal system built in the tort system built into ICBC has led to flaws that have led to losses. And so it's a complex issue at ICBC. Uh, but this is one step. It's, it's the NDP's argument for how to fix the public insurer. Is it the perfect system? Well, that's up for the politicians to debate. But based on the projections, not only will it help put out that dumpster fire, Sterling, it will actually save British Columbians hundreds of dollars a year on average um, once this no-fault system comes into place. Well, that, of course, would bring enormous relief to a lot of us. So, well, of course, we're waiting for the evidence, aren't we? Let's go to the phones uh, in Vancouver. Brendan, good morning. What do you make of these uh, ICBC changes? Well, i got to say I'm pretty concerned. I'm not really clear on how 
the new no fault is different from, say, the WorkSafe model. But I will say that my experience with the WorkSafe model absolutely does not put the victim first. It's quite adversarial, and you get an adjudicator who decides which treatments you may or may not get at which time. And it still becomes adversarial, although the lawyers are not allowed to get involved. Interesting. So, well, thanks for the call, Brendan. What do you know about that, Richard, in terms of, as Brendan describes, the WorkSafe model? Is ICBC essentially going to mirror that? It's going to be different, but there are some similarities, and those concerns have been raised as well about, you know, dealing with one's physical and mental health is complicated. And a lot of British Columbians don't have, aren't attached to doctors, and so continuance of care can be complicated. Mm-hmm. And so there will be issues here with when, as described by the caller, someone gets hurt in a car crash, what is the right way to do that treatment? And there will be a tribunal, and there's a lot of work being done on the behind the scenes at ICBC to establish this tribunal, which will in part uh, replace part of the work that the court system is doing. There also will be somebody hired to oversee ICBC, which is going to be different than WorkSafe due to an accountability piece. Mm-hmm. But with the millions of people that are involved in ICBC with the number of people who have policies added on top of the thousands and thousands and thousands of claims, overseeing ICBC will also be complicated. So it's a really good point. You know, everybody's injuries will be different and how they get treated. Like one example we keep hearing is about brain injuries. So under uh, the, the, the changing, altering system, you may have a short-term brain injury that gets treated, but there could be side effects that come into place years later, uh, which may no longer be supported by your claim. And so there are complications because of how complicated injuries can be. Interesting. Uh, one more call here as uh, Paul has been waiting patiently. Paul, if you can be quick, jump in. Good morning. Certainly. Th- certainly. Thanks for having me on. You're welcome. Let's talk about the dumpster fire. First of all, it was no dumpster fire. ICBC had $30 billion in their coffers before the Liberals raided it to say they had a balanced budget. Right. The NDP got in and now ICBC's got trouble. As far as the lawyers go that are unemployed, I'm sorry, I don't have any sympathy for you. And also with the ICBC and the way they're putting it together now, where's anybody's inspiration? It's a 50-50 call when you're going to get into an accident when you leave your house or not. Why would you even bother insuring your car? Where's the inspiration? Well, what, what about your what about your passengers that get into big big problems? What do they get? Well, obviously you insure your car because it's the law, Paul. But uh, I, I get your point. And um, another um, from Jim, an email here. Rather ironic that the NDP in the '90s, Richard, said no to no fault insurance, but 20 years on, and now it's fair game. Uh, it, it is always a moving playing field, isn't it? Yeah, and so there's a lot of pieces there. And to the question that Paul wrote, you know, brought up, we are going to see less people insuring their vehicles. I think, mm. as and and we've seen this as costs go up and up and up. And so once we get into the shift and the prices go down, we may see a change in that. But we've heard you mean people driving without insurance at all, or people just insuring their vehicles as they have, for example, during this pandemic. A lot of people just pulled the insurance, Richard, because the car hasn't moved for months. Yeah, yeah, that's totally that's totally different. This is in terms of people not being able to actually afford insurance. Gotcha. 
and, and taking that risk. And that is obviously against the law and incredibly dangerous and, and could lead to some very serious legal consequences you if you're involved in a crash when you're not insured. So that's a major issue. In terms of the NDP revisiting this, during the 90s, when the NDP looked at moving towards a no-fault model, there was huge resistance because it didn't come with the same sort of benefits package we've seen here. And now the NDP has on, on board, you know, organizations that help deal with the care of British Columbians around physiotherapists and, and chiropractors. So and it's, these organizations... it's, it's, it's a better scenario all around. Richard, I have to leave it there because I'm fresh out of time. And as always, very grateful for yours. Saw the story last night on the news hour. Well, jo- well done. And thanks for the follow up this morning. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks, Sterling. Have a great day. Mike is off today, and uh, for the next couple of days, actually, he'll be back on Thursday. Sterling Fox, a pleasure to sit in for Mr. Smith and be with you on a nice sunny Monday morning. Some very interesting news, quite disturbing news for many. Over the weekend, the country's two largest airlines are ending their onboard seat distancing policy starting Oh, July 1st, that would be, yeah, the day after tomorrow. And, of course, uh, the carriers uh, said on Friday they will revert to, to health recommendations from the United Nations Aviation Agency and the International Air Transport Association, IATA, trade group. Well, needless to say, this has provoked a lot of reaction, uh, some of which is coming from Gabor Lukacs from airpassengerrights.ca. He's been on this file for a long time. And, Gabor, uh, good morning and welcome for First of all, and what do you make of these measures? Good morning. Those uh, announcements are profoundly troubling. It seems that the airlines are putting their profits ahead of passengers' health and safety, not only the passengers, actually, but of the destination provinces. What the reports and even the airlines and everyone who is talking about it seems to lose sight of that the issue here is a pandemic. It's not simply whether the passenger themselves assumes a calculated risk. Right. Rather, what happens when they arrive at the destination, they meet with people there, and then they start spreading the virus in a community that otherwise might be free of the virus. Here in Nova Scotia, we haven't had a new case report for more than two weeks. Right. So if someone flew in here and they were at the chance of uh, acquiring it on the flight, I wonder what the local health authorities should do in terms of requiring a person to be quarantining themselves for 14 days or possibly longer just to ensure that the consequences of their choice to fly on such a flight are not affecting everybody else here. Yeah, indeed. Let's uh, take, the, a, let's take, just take a moment, Gabor, because not everyone, uh, we may have heard the story at least over the weekend in headline form, but let's just take a minute. We have a report here from Carolyn Kersey de Castillo uh, with the details on this removal of physical distancing. Canada's two largest airlines are ending their onboard seat distancing policies. It comes as demand for domestic travel is starting to pick up. Carolyn Curry de Castillo is at the Calgary International Airport tonight. Carolyn Airlines were blocking that middle seat, but that now is changing. Yes, Dallas, it was back in April that both WestJet and Air Canada started blocking off the purchase of the middle and adjacent seats to help stop the spread of COVID-19. But today, both airlines made an announcement that they will stop that practice as of July 1st. That's after a review of information from their industry group, IATA. Now, IATA released a report earlier this month calling for an end to in-flight social distancing rules. Now, WestJet says there are many measures in place 
place to keep people safe while they're traveling, like temperature checks, enhanced cleaning, of course, the masks are required, and HEPA air filters on planes. They also say the seatbacks provide protection to passengers. Now, in a statement, WestJet said safety is at the foremost of every decision they make, and as industry adapts to a new normal, they'll continue to adjust health measures to ensure the safest travel experience. Now, people we spoke to at the Calgary International Airport seem to have mixed feelings about sitting a little closer to their fellow passengers. Usually I'm traveling with my family in the summer, so chances are we're all going to be sitting beside one another. Uh, even if I had to sit uh, next to people I didn't know, I, I, I feel confident and comfortable that everyone is following the guidelines and the rules and wearing their masks and being healthy and safe. It's a little too close. <laughs> like my taste, it's especially strangers. Still want to keep your distance a little bit, I think. Everything we're doing right now is living day by day. So I just hope it is a wise decision that doesn't cause anything to go crazy. And as air travel slowly starts to pick up, American Airlines also announced today that they will be back to booking to full capacity as of Wednesday. Oh, there you go. Now we have that a little bit of a backgrounder there with uh, Gabor Lukacs uh, from Air Passenger Rights listening along with you. Uh, and of course, mixed reaction from flyers. Some people don't seem to mind it at all, Gabor, and others are very put off by it. And as you, I think, quite accurately point out, uh, it's more than just passenger comfort issues. We're still in the midst of a pandemic, and, and it seems that uh, the airlines, uh, and you, you, you've got to feel to... For, for them to the extent that they're, they're, they're just in horrible, horrible financial shape, desperate to try and generate some cash flow to try not to go bankrupt. And at the same time, uh, there's also a, a little matter of a pandemic, and uh, you can't be cavalier about that. So in the middle of all of this, Gabor, people like you and me, Canadians across the country, who, you know, maybe up until now have been considering a flight of some description this summer. Well, uh, it is not a matter of someone's personal opinion, uh, whether they think it's safe or not. It is a matter of what health care experts, public health experts are uh, saying. And they are telling us that we need to have uh, social distancing on uh, public transportation. We even need to have social distancing when we are outside. So this begs the question, how possibly this could be different when they are on board a plane. It well, doesn't add up. That's right, because, of course, now the the, uh, the new rules, and this was just announced here in Vancouver, Gabor, about a week and a half ago with respect to masks. And, you, for, for example, here you're dropping someone off for a flight. You will literally drop them off at the curb. You're not welcome to go into the terminal if, indeed, you're not flying anywhere. The same with meeting arrivals. You have to wait outside and once you walk into the terminal, you put that mask on, Gabor, and you're not expected to take it off until you walk out of the terminal at the other end of your flight. So that part we completely understand. We understand the need for distancing while you're waiting to get checked in and get your baggage organized and get your ticket stamped and all that stuff. And even uh, distancing with appropriate seats X'd out in the boarding lounge, uh, in the waiting areas. And then we get on the plane and we're packed in tight. The airlines are putting all their money on HEPA filters. They say this filtration system completely cleans all of the air in the aircraft once every five minutes. 
I can hardly imagine a better cleaning than being outdoors. Uh, I don't trust the information coming from the International Air Transport Association. They are a trade association working to maximize profits for the airlines and not to protect public health. They don't have the necessary expertise. Uh, the people that I would have way more faith in, for example, in the province of BC, Dr. Henry, yeah. he's a really amazing chief medical officer, uh, someone who the fact that BC has been faring so well in this situation is partially her personal achievement. She, her, her, her credibility and expertise have been keeping people, people safe. So I would want to hear her, what she has to say on this HEPA filter theory. Would she feel comfortable with uh, abolishing uh, social distancing on board? Would she get on her, that flight? Would she put her children on that flight? If she says yes, then I would consider until such time, I would not get on any plane that doesn't have social well, And, you know, that's fair ball, too. And I think a lot of us here uh, in uh, the news biz, especially to say nothing of the flying public, because these changes come down on Wednesday. So uh, in addition to her regular briefing on a Monday afternoon today at three o'clock local, I expect Dr. Bonnie Henry is going to be asked by several members of the media what her thoughts are on these new revised flying provisions by the major carriers. Now, you're in Nova Scotia. What does your province's chief medical officer, Gabor, have to say about these uh, uh, changes, or has that person spoken up yet? I haven't heard him speak out on this, and, and I, think, I think this is a time where the provincial chief medical officer should be speaking up. Uh, obviously, they have no control of federal matters, but when, when somebody is coming into the province, that's provincial matter. Sterling Fox in for Mike Smith on a Monday morning, joined by Gabor Lukacs from airpassengerrights.ca. We're talking about the changes in terms of distancing on board aircraft by both Air Canada and WestJet effective Wednesday. Our producer, Jason Manawas, did reach out to the airlines. WestJet got back to us with, uh, to comment and join the conversation. WestJet rather got back to us with, we appreciate the offer. However, we will pass, but they sent along a long statement, at the end of which is safety is at the forefront of every decision we make, and as our industry adapts to a new normal, we will continue to adjust our health measures to ensure the safest travel experience. This includes spending millions of dollars in cleaning and sanitizing measures, along with personal protective equipment to ensure the safety and well-being of our guests and our people. Uh, And that's uh, where they're going to leave it, Gabor. Uh, The callers, however, probably have more to say than the airlines at this point. So let's go to the phones and check in with Chris first. Chris, good morning. Hello, how are you doing today? All right, thanks. What do you think about these changes on board aircraft, Chris? I just had a, a question for, for Gabber there. He's um, like, I'm just reading on his website here. He's uh, a consultant for Flair Airlines. And uh, I just like Flair Airlines has a really strange social distancing safety policy. They're actually making passengers pay $49 for the uh, privilege of having the seat in between them empty. Um, Gabber seems like a nice enough guy, but he seems really quick to hammer down on Air Canada and WestJet before reaching out to the other airlines. Like, it's um, it seems kind of unfair, actually. All right, well, well, let's let's ask Gabor about this. Uh, about the is is there some substance to what our caller is talking about? And are would you think people would be prepared to pay more to have empty seats on their aircraft? I have already been commenting on Flair's uh, egregious practice in this regard. What Flair is doing is completely unacceptable, in my opinion, to charge people for something which is necessary to protect one's health and safety. So uh, I, I have already called them out about this publicly. And so the notion of uh, airlines uh, possibly 
trying to strike a deal. Suppose now there's a lot of negative feedback from the Dr. Bonnie Henrys of our community right across the country. All of them get their backs up and go, you know, this is crazy. This is this is a, a unnecessarily high risk. So the airlines at that point uh, might be uh, looking at uh, back to the notion of some distancing unless people are prepared to pay more. Do you think they would go to that model, Gabor? They're pretty desperate. I don't see it happening myself. What do you think? I don't think that it is even lawful to ask people to pay for that. This is a matter of public health requirement. If an airline cannot operate a flight in a way that conforms to the requirements of public safety and health, they shouldn't operate the flight. Simple as that. If they cannot remain in business without following health and safety, they can go out of business. We have to bear in mind that we are the airline is trying to ask the rest of Canada, about 97% of the economy, to potentially risk a second wave for the sake of a 3%, which is the airline business. That right. stinks. Back to the that phones. We're uh, in Vancouver with Robin up next. Robin, good morning. Yeah, good morning. Uh, I've been trying to work for years trying to get reduced rates on air travel for people with disabilities and seniors, especially people with disabilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, would it be possible? I, I know you're talking about increasing for half of passengers, but right now, but in future, wouldn't it be possible to get some reduction? Now, especially on a short haul flight, like from you know the area here to Kamloops, yeah. your guests might not know the distance. It's only 200 miles or something like that. But, I mean, that's $300 is quite a lot if you're. I, I used to have to travel up there for family reasons. No, it's a fair question, and, and we'll ask our, our guest, Gabor, uh, especially on short-haul domestic flights, uh, deductions or considerations of uh, in terms of flight costs for Canadians with disabilities. Uh, well, um, I, I, obviously, right to disability is a very important right, but in terms of uh, deductions or, or uh, uh, rebates, that the airlines don't have to act nicely. If the federal government wants to fund it, it's a different matter. But I don't expect the airlines to act generously. They just have to act according to the law. Yeah, you know, we're also talking about, you know, public health commentary from Dr. Bonnie Henry and from your doctor in Nova Scotia. There is another individual in that group that uh, would probably have something to say about this, and that is the National Officer of Public Health, Dr. Teresa Tam, who, in coordination with the Department of Transport, and after all, this is a federal issue controlled by the federal government. Have you uh, heard uh, word one from either the Department of Transport or the Canadian um, National Medical Health Officer? No, I haven't heard any comments on uh, this, and that's profoundly troubling. Uh, these are people who are trained and have the expertise and knowledge. And instead of going to them, the government is probably just listening to what the airlines have to say. Uh, and it's another example of the government putting the uh, interest of private corporations ahead of the public interest. Do you think that this is a reversible situation if the transport department, for example, discovers quite a pushback from potential flying Canadians who are, aren't interested uh, in, uh, in maximum capacity aircraft, that they could reverse this or cause the airlines to reconsider these changes? Certainly Transport Canada has every right to, to step in and they have jurisdiction to deal with the matter. 
the trouble is that they don't have an appetite. <laughs> they, they simply care more about the airline's profits than the public's health, as we have seen in the past when it comes to uh, Transport Canada. So uh, I, the one possibility that might help is if the Minister of Health would step in, because this is also a health issue. Another way how provincial health experts could step in is issuing additional provincial health orders that, that effectively make it impractical for people to fly on those flights. Because if you came in on a flight which didn't have middle seat type of social distancing, I would we can be put me for a, a mandatory quarantine for 14, 21 days. And that way, de facto, this could be forced on the airlines because nobody will want to fly in those circumstances. I have a last question for you, Gabor, and I'm almost out of time, but you're in Nova Scotia and there's some confusion here in B.C. Are British Columbians welcome in the maritime provinces this summer or are you in your maritime bubble? And if anyone from outside that comes in, there's a 14-day quarantine before we get to enjoy some lobster and PEI, that kind of thing? And those things are evolving and I'm not following the daily level of the the current daily orders. I believe that the Atlantic bubble is going to take place soon if it has not already taken place. Uh, I'm not I, I'm not sure what is the situation as of today with respect to visitors from BC. I would have to check. All I, right. I don't want to just misspeak. Okay, and that's fair, Ball. We appreciate your comments on the air passenger uh, changes to both the Air Canada and WestJet, effective Wednesday. Uh, And I can commend your website to our listeners. It is airpassengerrights.ca. Gabor Lukacs, president and founder. Thanks for joining us today. Good to have you with us. Thank you very much. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Having me. Good morning to you. Sterling Fox in for Mike Smith on this lovely-looking Monday morning. Hollywood North is about to start rolling again with more than a dozen productions set to start filming in B.C., but once the cameras start to roll, it will be under somewhat different conditions. Our next guest, Globe and Mail reporter Ian Bailey, wrote about this a month ago uh, on a column entitled Challenges Ahead as B.C.'s film industry prepares to restart. Ian, good morning. It took a month, but... uh, It's about time we had a chat about the column you wrote. Good morning. Good morning, Sterling. How are you doing? I'm fine, thanks. Good to have you with us. Hollywood North is, uh, it's it's, uh, 70,000 people are employed in British Columbia's film industry. It matters a great deal to our economy. We've been absolutely uh, at zero in terms of productivity for the last few months. Uh, According to the guidelines, Ian, when do cameras get to roll in B.C.? Well, you know, it's seventy thousand and three billion dollars yes. a year in production, and I mean, um, you know, you know, there's a there's a Creative BC website that tracks production, and for the last little while, you go down the list of shows, and they're temporarily suspended mm-hmm. or nixed or not working. But now you see a few major shows: The Good Doctor, uh, When Calls the Heart. Uh, a few TV movies are now now appear to be working, so they're slowly resuming. But it's going to be a new world for film production, film and TV production, like, like in other industries, like the restaurant industry, like schools. It's going to be a very new rules. 
to uh, to uh, sort of do what they did in past. And in time, uh, the expectation is that other shows are going to sort of start working again in BC. Some of the comic book uh, Arrowverse shows are reportedly set to resume production later in the summer, and uh, viewers will see those shows much later than September, which had been usual. There's some talk about, you know, new season starting in January. So it's slowly going to start again, but under very new rules. A lot of the uh, film crews, or most of the film crews, are local. There are very talented people who have been working in the business for a long time and who work, whose rates are considerably lower than in the United States. Combine that with the all-discount city lower Canadian dollar, and there's no wonder we're so darn attractive to movie makers from around the world, Ian. But I'm wondering uh, how long it took for WorkSafe BC to design the specific guideline package that applies to the film industry and is now uh, the rule. Well, I'll go back. You know, it's the crews, the the very experienced crews that sort of make this industry appealing to Hollywood. But it's also the fact that BC is in the same time zone as Hollywood. Mm -hmm. Uh, Also, visual effects. Uh, Just to go back before we go forward to your question, visual effects. A lot of big visual effects shops in uh, Vancouver doing superhero films, space scenes, dragons, whatever. That's right. Hollywood. So these are some of the things that appeal. Um, Look, it took us a a few weeks or so for WorkSafe BC consulting with the industry to come up with the rules. And these rules, uh, you know, no more buffets, uh, clean trailers, um, trying to reuse extras and sort of um, keeping distance on set. It's interesting. These rules are pretty consistent with the rules elsewhere in the world. Sure. Where production is resuming rules in New Zealand and Georgia. The U.S. state of Georgia, where they make most of the Marvel movies uh, and The Walking Dead, rules in India, rules in France, rules in the United Kingdom, which has some big films, the Jurassic World sequel, for example, um, about to, or resuming production. So it took a little bit of time to come up with these rules. The, the industry now will be uh, making these rules work in production. And, you know, we're going to see over time if it works. That remains to be seen. Now, let's talk a little bit about the people who aren't local. And a lot of them, of course, are performers, and some of them are directors and writers and other contributors to the film projects. Uh, I would assume most of them are coming from the United States or certainly from abroad. And, and I would assume also across the board that each and every one of those individuals coming to work in British Columbia, Ian, is going to be required to quarantine for 14 days before they do anything else. This is going to be, I can only imagine this is going to be a hugely complicated situation. You're right. In past, the director directing an episode of a show would come in, do some pre-production work, get to work, do the show, and then be done. Right. Now they're going to have to build in 14 days of, uh, of directors as well as, um, as, well as uh, actors, supporting actors, guest stars coming in and doing their 14 days um, in B.C. Uh, before they even get to the set and get to work. Presumably, those uh, technical people and performers heading back to the United States or to England or elsewhere would have to quarantine for 14 days when they get home. When they get back home, yeah. So you're going to see something really complex. There has been some speculation, and it's uh, not unreasonable that perhaps, you know, BC has a lot of talented actors who do work in the BC film industry. Maybe they're going to get their shot for more uh, prominent supporting guest star roles because it'd be easier to use them. Sure. Uh, and and there is um there are directors who are British Columbians um, um you know who who will may get more work doing some of these shows because they're here obviously and they don't have to quarantine. 
worth noting as well, though, I think that, um, you know, clearly the COVID-19 situation is um, it's a tragedy. It's dramatically serious in the United States. It's not going well down there. B.C. is doing better. So B.C. may be more appealing than ever to producers in Hollywood because it's a kind of um, the situation here isn't as bad. But, of course, one of the challenges, of course, will be getting crews, will be getting sound stages in the best of times before the pandemic. Some of this was a challenge going forward. Who knows? It may be more of a challenge. Well, I think you're right. As a matter of fact, I agree completely. I think that because we have been busy, we have a fabulous reputation amongst movie makers uh, that uh, I'm not surprised. You said there, uh, I'm I'm on Creative BC right now, as a matter of fact, and you said there's a list of about a dozen different productions that are either launching or are uh, on the launch pad. That that list, uh, Ian, has been dozens long uh, in, in previous summers. I don't think it's going to take very long for it to get stretched out uh, to much longer than it is right now. Do you? No, not at all. Look, there are shows that are coming back. There are shows that uh, even in these challenging times are scheduled for future seasons or their next season, you know, like a flash or super sure. or, or such that I, I didn't see those on that list, but those shows are booked to come back. So they will be back. You know, one point I'd like to make is that BC, I mean, this work is seen by everyone when it's uh, you know released or when it airs, but it's done on sound stages and former warehouses. I even recall once a former uh, script shopping mall out in Maple Ridge. It's done very much out of the public eye, except on location. Mm-hmm. So in these sound stages across the region, as I say, former warehouses, former industrial spaces, and such, you know, this experiment in a way, this this effort to try and do this work in the COVID age will be underway. And I guess perhaps thanks to WorkSafe BC agencies that keep an eye on these uh, workplace issues, we will hear if there are infections, if it doesn't work. And that's going to be something to watch closely. But that work will happen out of the public eye because much of this work is done, you know, know, out of the public eye because, of course, uh, they want to air or release it uh, for the entertainment of the public. But we're going to see if it works, not just here in British Columbia, of course, but in other jurisdictions that have resumed uh, resumed uh, production. Well, we're going to be the model for anywhere else. I mean, Toronto has its fair share of, of uh, film and television activity as well, but not certainly at the volume level that BC does, and they're nowhere near being ready to, uh, to implement anything as we are. June 24th, by the way, was the official start day of Phase 3 and all the safety gu- guidelines kicking in. So it really has only been a matter of a couple of days, but we are going to end up, I imagine people will be taking notes, Ian, all across the country once uh, cameras start to roll in BC. I think they'll be taking notes of BC. I imagine, and I understand, you know, British Columbians are looking at other places in the world uh, to see how they're doing, what's working for them, uh, see how it works. And as I said earlier, Iceland, um, um, the United Kingdom, they're there. everyone is looking at everyone, is my impression, to see who is doing this right and how it's working out. A lot is at stake. I wonder, just before we take the break here, I wonder, you know, we've had a lot of chat, Ian, lately about the possibility of Vancouver being a sports hub, one of those playoff cities for the uh, limited NHL season going forward. And then it's been decided that, no, we're not going to do that. And, And generally the tone that I've picked up on from most British Columbians after that announcement by the NHL and the Canucks was one of relief. 
You know, we've dodged a bullet. All those germy people coming to town, we don't need it. What are you hearing? Because you do more work on the ground vis-a-vis the film and TV side of, of life than I do. What are you hearing from local folks about the return of these performers and other people in the industry? Any negatives? Last time I looked, what I heard was that this is an industry that where people want to get back to work and want to figure out how to make it work. I mean, you have thousands of workers, um, you know, who want to get, you know, for, for economic reasons, for reasons of being productive and because they love the work, they want to get back at it. And what I also heard was that, you know, this is an industry of problem solvers. Production is about solving problems. Sure. Uh, so they're, they're eager to give it a crack and, and to see if they can make this work. Um, and to get back to work, get back to producing this material. It's Sterling Fox in for Mike Smith on a beautiful Monday morning. It's 1049. Our guest is Ian Bailey, who is a reporter with Globe and Mail Meg, uh, newspaper. And Ian's uh, uh, covering the uh, Hollywood North Beat. And I did the, a quick scroll through Creative BC during the break. And, you know, lots of temporarily suspended and TBAs uh, on that list of attractions uh, that are uh, under consideration. But you, as you said, Ian, uh, there are quite a number of of. of items and productions underway uh, four of them here are four titles chateau christmas christmas forgiveness deliver by christmas and the christmas nanny <laughs> got a bit of a theme going on here that's uh, one of those uh, romance series uh, that's in production a lot of which gets done in cloverdale right that's correct. I, I, I could be wrong, but I would assume many of these may be Christmas films that are being produced now. For exactly. Release, uh, TV films released uh, later this year. Indeed. Obviously around the holidays or le- leading up to the holidays. And these are, of course, productions that will take place on sound, sound stages and uh, in, on sets, generally indoors. But as you, as you noted earlier, sometimes we do get to see a movie being made outdoors. And in, nothing like Christmas in July when you're on location in Vancouver. It is fun to watch a film set on location, Ian. It's fun to watch the people watching the movies being made. And the first thing people notice is how incredibly labor-intensive it is. There's a ton of people working on every shoot. Yeah, you know, our, our bureau is located downtown in Vancouver near, as I guess uh, your station is, near the, Van- the uh, North Plaza, the Vancouver Art Gallery. Most days, many days of the week, you go by there and crews are shooting uh, feature films, TV series, um, big productions making use of that distinct, in Vancouver anyway, that distinct architecture on the North Plaza. It's interesting, you know, sometimes the productions get large enough. I recall when a, the uh, Batwoman series was shooting its early episodes, right. sometimes that you would get dozens of people at night, passers-by, members of the public, uh, staying out of the line of sight, shall we say, of the cameras, but mm-hmm. looking on and watching in detail as these productions were done. It's quite something to see, taking pictures, uh, almost a festive atmosphere. But, you know, that, that's a popular location. But, you know, this may have changed in recent years. You know, around downtown Vancouver and other parts of the Surrey City Hall, for example. Sure. Surrey is a popular location that uh, used by, you mentioned, we were talking earlier really about the Good Doctor, used regularly by that series. And um, so, yeah, there are these locations around. It's, it's You see film production all the time. And, of course, since the lockdown, since March, it's been a, that has been gone. There has been no sign of it. And um, although I guess the expectation is that there is work to do and they will be coming back.
Yeah, I live in New West, and uh, parts of The Good Doctor are shot in one of the uh, boardrooms in Queens Park. And every now and then they'll close a parking lot and and uh, seal it off. And you can t- and, and again, there's just all the the, the craftspeople, the the whole entourage that surrounds a movie production. It's bog- mind boggling, actually, how many people are involved. Seventy thousand British Columbians to the tune of three billion dollars a year. These are the numbers that you threw around at the beginning of this conversation. Let's talk a little bit. Uh, Ian, about the rules, the nuts and bolts of getting things done in a in, in a very intimate medium that still requires distancing uh, from the people who are overseeing it all. Yeah, you know, I'm looking here at the uh, WorkSafe BC uh, protocol, motion picture and television protocols for returning to operation. Um, you know, there's discussion about. Um, uh, eliminating sort of uh, well, they're saying for serving food, for example, mm-hmm. uh, eliminating self-serve items and replacing them with attended stations, catering or individually wrapped snacks and prepackaged meals. There's uh, there are recommendations about um, avoid providing hair and makeup for background performers, otherwise known as extras. Extra, sure. Yeah, and, and all of these other measures to. Um, um, using alternate shot setups, camera angles, lenses, and such to allow for greater distance between performers, and filming large crews outdoors, large crew scenes outdoors where possible. And, you know, these are all tailored to the particular aspects of making film and TV. Although in some respects, we've seen these rules in restaurants. We're seeing them, as I said earlier, in schools, or if you go to certain retailers or such. But these are all measures designed to sort of uh, allow this production work to be done with uh, minimum contact. Uh, there has been reports from Hollywood about writers who will now be writing shows in different ways, avoiding crowd scenes, right. tweaking things along the way because of this age. And one assumes perhaps years down the road, people will look back at the, particularly the TV shows, I suppose, and the feature films produced in this period of time and notice something different about them. Something different about crowd scenes, something different about performers being close together. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Now, back to the article you wrote about a month ago about what was to come for the film business in British Columbia. Uh, a quote from the people at the Performers Union uh, on March 13th this year, there were 45 productions underway. Three days later, on March 16th, we were down to zero, and we have remained at zero up until just a few short days ago. How long do you think it's going to take before we get back up to, shall we say, sort of flank speed here, Ian? My guess, and it's just my guess from having you know uh, kept an eye on this industry, I'd say the fall, late summer, the fall. Perhaps mid, let's, let's tweak that a bit. Maybe mid-summer to early fall, you'll see shows resume in some way to try and get this work done. Although, you know, some in the industry might have a different uh, perspective on that point. And I guess as you talk to people in the business, something you do as part of your beat anyway, I guess the energy is just really bubbling below the surface, people just itching to get back. My sense is that people are itching to get back and to try and make a go of it, to, you know, try and take these rules and try and make this work. Well, let's hope they do. It's uh, certainly a valuable component to our economy, something we're all kind of proud of at the same time. And great the, uh, the premier has talked about a great deal with great enthusiasm, I've noticed, in a number of news conferences. Uh, you'd have to ask him about his enthusiasm for the film sector. It probably has to do with those 70,000 jobs and that $3 billion, but clearly something that's a priority for the, uh, for the provincial government as well.